Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live today from Boulder, Colorado. I've not recorded a podcast at this elevation before, so hopefully I can make it through with today's guest, Gene Kramer Crosby, president of the Ball State University Foundation and vice president for university advancement at Ball State University. Welcome, Gene. Hi, Brent. It's nice to be with you. It's a real pleasure. Well, we have really uh, been enjoying getting to know many of your peers uh, throughout the sector. And in fact, just recently, we were at the Case Summit in Chicago and we celebrated uh, Round in the Corner on 100 episodes of the Rays podcast. And we had a great event at the uh, Museum for Contemporary Art with a lot of our um, podcast alumni, uh, if you will. And so uh, excited to uh, keep the momentum here today and wanted to start by just asking you um, the question I've been asking most of my recent guests, which is uh, very few of us um, in high school were planning for a career in philanthropy, right? And then along the way, um, we stumble upon the space. Um, And so I just love to know a little bit more about your own higher education journey and uh, take me back to junior, senior year of high school. Who was that Jean? What was she into? And what led her to Ball State University? Right. So, yeah, I was listening to some of your podcasts and I love it's so interesting to hear how everyone's journey starts. So I grew up in Muncie where Ball State University is located and attended Burris Laboratory School K through 12. So a lab school obviously is a little bit of a different format. So Ball State was really part of my story since kindergarten. We had student teachers in our classroom, had a familiarity with the university and really a connection to Ball State. So higher ed was always part of my story. My father was also a professor at the university. So I don't know where my Ball State story started because it's always been really part of my life. Um, But junior, senior year, um, you know, Burris was an interesting environment to be a student because we had uh, professors who really taught us to question uh, things that they were teaching. It was always a conversation. Um, and I think very early on, I was taught that having a voice and a space at the table um, mattered. And um, that just became something I assume mattered to everybody else as I entered the career world that of course I would be invited to share my opinion or my thought because that was always sort of the environment I'd been in. Um, I found it similar when I came to Ball State as a student, kind of a similar environment. We knew our professors felt like they were personally invested in our success And so I think all of that led me to start my career, again, assuming best intent. Of course, my boss was going to be invested in me, invested in my journey, um, and wanting what was best for me. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit of who I was. And so did you even apply anywhere else, or was it like Ball State or bust? I mean, how focused were you? Yeah, so I think for me, it was always an assumption of like, of course. I'm going to Ball State. Um, like I said, I mean, I learned how to swim in our pool at Ball State. I had, you know, gym classes came over to the university. So it really was always part of my part of my life. And um, you know, we looked forward to it when Ball State students came back on the campus, it brought Muncie alive. And so um I always saw the energy that our students brought to the community and knew I wanted to be part of that. So 
And so, uh, I mean, sounds like by your, you know, first year in college, it was really your 13th year or so uh, of the Ball State education. Right. Um, Did you know what you wanted to study? I mean, how focused were you going in? Uh, Again, recognizing that nobody says, I want to lead a foundation someday for the most part. That wasn't on my radar. (laughs) Um, So I came to college, um, got involved with Greek life. Um, joined Chi Omega Sorority and um, really became involved in leadership roles on campus, um, but picked my speech communications major pretty early on. Um, again, because I realized that communication, if you could articulate a message and tell a story, you could pretty much do any job. That was, again, I think because I was taught very early on that making a case for yourself, for others, having a voice mattered. Um, I saw that that was going to be critical to my success in whatever career I was going to go into. So I didn't know where it would lead me, but I felt like it was going to teach me some pretty essential skills. And so at what stage of the journey, I mean, you're involved in Greek life. And so sometimes there can be some fundraising, at least kind of, you know, grassroots fundraising associated with that. Um, but ultimately, your first job out of college was with Rotary International. At what yeah. point did that get on your radar? Right. So um, my parents always taught myself, my sisters, that giving back was important. So that was kind of a fundamental um, thing that we participated in as a family. So I didn't know that I wanted to lead a foundation, but I did think I wanted to go into nonprofit work. And so you know, back in the day, went to the library and checked out a book that had a list of all the nonprofits in the Chicago area because my boyfriend at the time, which is now my husband, had moved a year before me to Chicago. So I uh, thought it would be a, a good place to, to move after college. And so Rotary International was one of the first places that I applied to and um, had an interview and was fortunate enough to get a job there. And my first boss was just really that lifelong mentor for me and continues to be. So, so I am going to admit here um, that Rotary International is one of those brands that I absolutely recognize. Yeah. And as I was preparing for this podcast, I realized I knew almost nothing about it. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so what fun. is Rotary International and right. why do I know what it is but I, or know of it, but not really know exactly what it does? Right. Yeah. So I think um, just like I did, I associated it with that rotary wheel that you see on every sign when you pull into a new community, right? Uh, the Rotary Club. So I thought about it at a very local level. But what interested me is that there was this Nash international organization of members coming together to really do good in the world. And at the time that I worked there, they were very focused on the eradication of polio. Um, But also, you know, lots of other things related to um, students having an opportunity to study internationally. um, And, you know, they have a variety of programs. But for me, the appeal was, it was a large organization. They had between four and 500 employees when I worked there. Um, seven languages, everything was simultaneously translated. I mean, so as a kid from Muncie to go live in Evanston, which is a pretty cool town, 
to be a part of a large organization that was really focused on doing good. And I think, you know, at a very high level, understanding that as a planet, we are all connected to one another and have a responsibility to take care of each other. That was something I felt like I could get behind um, and support. So that was that was kind of what drew me to the organization. And it was a fantastic experience. And it says 1.4 million members, which include neighbors, friends, leaders, and problem solvers, and 35,000 clubs in more than 200 geographical areas. Um, That is such a broad scope. What does that mean when it comes down to the brass tacks of fundraising? Right. Because in a certain regard, it sounds like your constituency is the world. Right. (laughs) Right. Like a broad constituency. Yeah. Right. So it's an interesting organization and an interesting person or interesting way to learn fundraising, right? Because certainly at a club level, um, that is going on and there are projects that people are supporting within their own communities. But at Rotary International, um, you know, you're really appealing to this sort of broad scope cause that you're hoping everyone can um, share you know, belief in. I will say at Rotary, the other piece of it is there's a structure to it. So there's an international board, there are district governors, there are zones, clubs, this whole structure. And um, giving to the organization is an important part as you move along your journey in a volunteer. Um, And so I worked with the Midwest and the Eastern part of Canada was my territory as a fundraiser there. Um, And it was just, as I said, it was really rewarding to see people serving something larger than themselves. It was cool to see it at the local level, but it was really cool to see that people wanted to support this at a global level because they really believe that we can accomplish something together as a community. And so as it relates to going from one point something million members down to a managed prospect pool. Right. How do you go from, I mean, we, you know, we see how much of a struggle it can be to go from a hundred thousand alumni down to 2000 managed prospects. How do you, how do you go from a million? And as you think about, you know, obviously it was a different time technology and data wise and all of those things, but where do you start? Right. So I think what I learned there that really has continued with me throughout my career is the importance of those human connections. So as a fundraiser, my number one tool was the volunteers. They knew their fellow Rotarians. They knew what mattered to them as individuals. They knew how to appeal to them and connect to them. And I really relied on them to build those connections for me because there was no way, I mean, obviously all of the Midwest, Eastern Canada, no way to your point that I'm going to know all of those Rotarians. But um, it was an important lesson that fundraising at the end of the day is really that human to human relationship. And the volunteers were in the best position to help me better understand what it is that the volunteer at the local level wanted from their rotary experience so that I could then connect them to opportunities to give back. I love the point about the importance of the human to human relationship, even at that scale. Right. Um, and ultimately it really can be make or break, right? The, the brand can be the same. The mission can be the same. Yeah. The needs can be the same. The difference maker being 
is there authentic human to human connection? And my understanding is that one of your more memorable gift stories actually centers around that fact that same organization, same mission, same impact, but a poor experience relative to a great experience can really be the difference maker. And I'd love to just get your perspective on that, um, that gift. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that matters no matter where you are. And we certainly talk a lot about that as our foundation team here at Ball State, but we all play an important role in how, whether it's your alumni or your membership as it was at Rotary, connect to the organization. So when I was working there, I had worked really closely with a donor who was considering a pretty substantial gift. It was going to be his largest gift to date to the organization. And um, that relationship was going very well. He was having a positive experience as a donor. We were doing all the things you do to steward and cultivate uh, uh, that relationship. But he was also a volunteer at a local level. And he had submitted some expenses for reimbursement. Um, And there was a delay, right? And it wasn't much. But the delay, you know, I'm sure there were a variety of reasons why that was happening. But from his perspective, he felt like we weren't responding to him. And to him, he then started to draw conclusions. Well, if you're not doing this like you said you would, does it mean that when I give you this gift, you're not going to do what you say you're going to do? Right. So it for him, it became this kind of point of doubt of, is this speak to a larger issue? How do I how do I trust? And it was just such a valuable lesson for me that trust and belief in that we're going to do what we say we're going to do with your resources. Um, boy, that really matters, and it can can go south quickly. Um, and as a fundraiser, it was an important lesson that I had to not only manage all the things that were within my control, but sometimes help to manage the things that sat outside of it because they were going to impact that relationship one way or another. And so, like I said, we spent a lot of time at the foundation talking about every interaction that someone has with our organization ultimately impacts how they feel about Ball State. So, And when you were in the role at Rotary, did you ever feel like, because like the affinity there is, is broad, it's local. um, It can range from like lightweight brand awareness, like I have to deep Mm -hmm. volunteerism and commitment. Right. Did you ever feel like you were competing with university fundraisers or competing with other nonprofits where, you know, why does the estate gift go to Rotary versus my alma mater? I mean, and, and I know it's, it's a, collaborative, you know, rising tide lifts all boats sort of sector. But do you ever feel that way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of our significant donors and a key volunteer was a president of his university's foundation, right? So I think we have to understand and we do as fundraisers that donors have a multitude of, of priorities and things that they're passionate about. And one doesn't replace the other. Sometimes it comes down to timing in their life or what matters to them at the, you know, um, because you've got a special initiative or something they're feeling really connected to. Um, But yeah, no, there's always, I mean, and certainly, you know, in higher ed, we realize we are not the only ones talking to our alumni. Um, And so 
I'm sure they're measuring us against other things that they're passionate about. Um, and that's, you know, that's always something that we're factoring in. But let's take talk about that transition, you know, a decade or so in yep. Evanston. Yep. Um, it could, probably couldn't have been easy to, uh, you know, move move back to Muncie, but uh, or maybe you were ready to to get out of the city and uh, get back to your roots. Just what what led to that move? And and I know there was a, a quick uh, pit stop before um, ultimately joining on with Ball State. Right. Yeah, so I had two daughters um, living in Chicago. I had a really difficult commute, which anyone that's lived in Chicago, I'm sure you know what that's like, the unpredictability and how much time I was spending on the road. And I also had a lot of travel demands with my job, and that was just becoming harder to do um, with how we wanted to raise our family and um, you know, the time I wanted to be home and have that balance with my husband and my daughter. So um, my husband was a high school coach and teacher, and so he also had a busy life. And so we both decided we want a different pace was really what it came down to. We had amazing friends and and uh, a work experience in Chicago, but wanted to move closer to home. So yeah, moved back and had a great opportunity to work for our local community foundation, which was really cool to, to grow up in Muncie, have been gone about 10 years, and then come back to this community that I loved, where my parents still lived, um, and really be in this great opportunity to give back. So it was a small organization, but that was awarding, you know, millions of dollars back into our community every year. And so it was a great time to come back to Muncie and see all the good things happening here and feel like I could be part of the change that was occurring. So that was a a wonderful experience. And after having been away for a while, I'm sure, um, there have to be like few better ways to get connected and get to know people in the community than working in the community foundation context. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a wonderful organization, long history um, in Muncie and really a good example of Indiana as a state and the philanthropy of the Lilly Foundation. So they had an initiative um, several years ago where they really challenged every county in the state of Indiana that if they wanted to start their own community foundation, they wanted to support that to really address local needs. And so Indiana's rare in that every single county in our state has its own community foundation. And I think it's a good example of Indiana as a whole, um, really neighbors helping neighbors and uh, the community coming together to solve local problems. So Muncie's a good example of that. And there must have been uh, just deep sort of intersection with the Ball State community uh, yeah. being in Muncie, but did you kind of dive back into, you know, did your daughters learn to swim at the pool and were you going right. to games and you kind of right. back to that yeah. experience? Absolutely, yeah, I mean, so I'd walk into the Target and someone would say, Jeannie Kramer, which always was you know, a little jarring because I knew it was like, oh my gosh, it's my first grade teacher or whatever. <laughs> so those moment, moments were new to get used to after having been gone for a while, but, um, but also fun, right? It gave me a renewed sense of connection um, and sense of community. 
which was different than, you know, living away. So um, yeah, Kate started coming back to homecoming. My daughter started going to Cardinal Kids Camp, which was, you know, a summer camp taught by our students. So um, they started to have some, you know, of their own experiences on our beautiful campus. But I think, you know, if I heard in your question, also this realization that Muncie and Ball State, their success is interwoven with one another. And um, it was apparent to me when I worked at the Community Foundation, but certainly when I came to Ball State, um, Ball State success, you know, in a lot of ways, um, it, you know, Muncie success is directly connected to that. Um, people know when they're enrolling their sons and daughters in our university, they're sending them to Muncie. And so we have a deep obligation to make sure that Muncie is also a success. And you see that in the university's initiatives in the Muncie community schools and other things. So that mattered to me as someone who grew up here. And as I said, whose parents still live here. So not exactly the same story, but, but I'll just share it because uh, it's so recent. My wife yeah. and I both grew up in Iowa. Yeah. Uh, have built the company in the Northeast uh, yeah. really since 2010. Yeah. Um, but have over the last several years, we have three boys. We've started spending, um, you know, meaningful periods of time back in Iowa during the summer, which yeah. is actually where I was yesterday. I flew out to Boulder for a board meeting, and okay. uh, as I was saying to you, we're we're now right. kind of uh, trying to multitask and, right. and do the podcast, you know, on the road uh, wherever we are. But yeah. um, we grew up right outside of uh, an area, um, a town called Decorah and Luther College is a little college okay. in, in Northeast Iowa. And it's the same dynamic where it's like Luther and this town Decorah are right. one and the same. And yeah. we just put our boys into their soccer camp hey. last week. And so right. the same kind of vibe. And I uh, had the opportunity to host their college president, Jennifer Ward on the podcast. So I That's tweeted cool. her a picture of my boys yeah. at the soccer camp and she wrote <laughs> back right away. And she was, you know, right. working the, the parade booth that weekend and just the whole kind of small town, small college um, dynamic, yeah. obviously Ball State being, yeah. being larger, but it is um, just a reminder of how um, important higher education is as a sort of economic and just social driver in all of these small towns um, around the country, which is why, you know, when you see headlines about what is the future of higher education, um, right. it sort of strikes a, a different chord when you've, when you've lived that uh, intersection. Yeah, so true. Good point. I love, I love that your boys are having that experience. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my uh, eight-year-old came back after the second day and he goes, dad, college must be a dream. And I go, why do you say that? And he said, because at lunch we go to the cafeteria and we can have as much ice cream and brownies I as mean. we want. And there are no parents to tell us no. And I'm like, you know what? That kind That's of actually a decent like window into college. And so, you know, true, but there are consequences and you're just going to have right. to work through that. So, yeah. Get a balance. So, <laughs> at least he wants to. Yeah, you he wants to go to college. So, right. you know, yeah. long-term aspirations as ice cream consumer, questionable, but he wants to go. So we'll, uh -huh. we'll get him there. Um, <laughs> so you had the opportunity to then join the foundation. Was that, a no-brainer? Was it a tough decision? Um, and my understanding is you started in a donor relations capacity, which is super interesting because I have, as I said, interviewed over a hundred 
of your peers and not very many, let's say you can count on one hand started in donor relations and have, um, you know, earned the opportunity to do what you're doing now. So uh, just tell me about the initial um, move and uh, that context and we'll go from there. Yeah. So when we moved back to Muncie, of course, I talked to, um, you know, the Ball State family about opportunities at the university, but the community foundation, just for where I was and what I wanted for my family at the time made more sense. Um, It was a unique opportunity in that all of our donors lived in Delaware County. So the travel demands I knew weren't going to be there like they maybe would at the university. So But, you know, your kids get a little bit older and you start to think about things differently. And um, certainly coming back to work at Ball State was something that I always wanted to do. Um, And donor relations just made a lot of sense for me because, as I shared earlier, you know, I really learned as a fundraiser that that was such a point of impact. And if we didn't do that well, if we didn't tell our story, show impact to the donor. It just made everything else that much harder. And so it really felt like if I wanted to be part of the success of the universe, that was a great place to to start at Ball State Um, and a great place to be able to reconnect with donors and alumni. So I was excited to, yeah, start my journey there. And so what's your perspective on donor relations? What is donor relations? Yeah. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'm sure everyone would have a different, different idea of that. I think for, for me, it was um, at the time really showing impact to, to our benefactors about how they were making a difference and connecting them in a meaningful way to our students. I think higher ed, sometimes it's hard to understand how your $1,000 gift is impacting, you know, an organization with a multi-million dollar budget. Um, But I think when uh, our benefactors hear from our students, uh, then it's it's an immediate, oh, of course, I, I was that kid, right? They started to see themselves in our student story, right? It's, In many cases, it's been a long time since our benefactors were on this campus, but boy, the story hasn't changed. Ball State still has a significant number of students who are first generation, um, and that that is a story that is not not unique, and many of our um, donors talk about that fork in the road, right? They could have they could have stayed home. They could have worked in a factory. They could have worked on a farm. They came to Ball State and it was this transformational experience um, for them. And while my journey to Ball State was a little bit different in that my father was a professor here, I know uh, my husband's experience of coming to Ball State. He was first generation um, and it changed the course of his life and of course our family's life. So um, just in in getting to know him and hearing about his Ball State story, um, you know, I knew that that was a story we had to connect our benefactors back to. Um, So I I don't know. I didn't answer that in a very concise way, but I think that's what it's about. You just used the word story. Mm. several times. Mm. And at the beginning of the conversation, when you were talking about speech communications and feeling like if you could help 
tell a story, you could do mm. anything. And mm. I feel like that is, um, and then you've also just shared the importance of a human to human connection. I mean, that's like in a certain degree, why we are here today. I mean, I'm, I'm a first gen student and, yeah. you know, getting opportunity to go to college, like literally is why I was able to go and start right. this company and, and, and do what we're doing now. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I do think that the opportunity now today to scale that authenticity, to scale the storytelling, to right. scale the human to human connection is so exciting because I feel like for a long time, you know, donor relations or maybe annual giving marketing, anything that was broad-based marketing was sort of, you know, students like Brent benefit, right? And it was sort of this nebulous, generic, like student persona. And and, and that's sort of where we were for so long. And then for the very, very top of the pyramid, you know, they get to come to the benefactor dinner and actually sit down with the students. But that's like, 1% of the population and everybody else had to hear about, you know, students like Brent or students like (laughs) Jeannie. Right. Right. And, and, um, you know, just last week I, I received my, uh, I received a personal thank you from a Brown football player in the weight room who was working out saying, Brent, we appreciate you. Thank you for your continued support of the organization. And it's like, that is so much better Um, when it's not students like Jeannie, but it's Jeannie or Brent or that individual. And I feel like, you know, probably even from when you started 10 years ago at the foundation, what's possible today, not just through, I mean, thank you is one example, but the pandemic zoom, you know, being able to connect the president with donors or faculty with donors without it being when can we get in your calendar and when can you travel and, and, right. and, and being able to scale that work. So I just kind of love right. your perspective on the, the then and now. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. So, you know, we have two of the best on our team, Lola Maurer and Stormy Harless do this really well. And I, I really give a lot of credit to them. I mean, they, I have had the good fortune of working with Lola almost my entire career here at Ball State. And um, she, you know, from the beginning was like, we have got to do a better job of personalizing um, our stories and connecting people to our students. And um, she has, she has just been a consistent voice for that across the organization. And what I often find with Lola is she's the one behind me saying like, we should really do, we should really do. And, you know, sometimes you've got a lot of noise, um, but Lola's right. When she comes to me with an idea, I'm always like, and she's like, yeah, I said that to you maybe like six months ago, <laughs> so, but we get there. And uh, she had, you know, the smarts to hire Stormy and we've continued to see Stormy grow in our organization, um, but they, it starts with their own passion um, about Ball State and their experience uh, that they had as a student and the opportunities that they feel like they were afforded. Um, and so I think that is always in their core of why they connect so well um, to to what it is that we do here. Um, and uh, yeah, those human to human stories, I just, they are, they make all the difference. And I think over this past couple of years, we were all just yearning for that, right? Everything felt so distant and I, you know, a sense of disconnect. 
And I think um, being able to put a student on camera to say thank you and send that to a donor in another part of the, the country or the world just all of a sudden brought Ball State back um, to, to donors. And um, as I said earlier, I think they saw themselves in our students because this the stories haven't changed. I mean, students, you know, certainly challenges may look a little different, but um, by and large, our, our students are the same, have the same, many of the same stories that uh, students did 20 and 30 years ago. So. Yeah, we, we continue to, you know, be inspired by, I mean, just what's happening in the world right now, right? Like it's, we're in the, the TikTok era uh, right now of, of, of the social web and obviously lots of um, following by by Facebook and Instagram. And then, you know, Cameo, for example, which yeah. is a Chicago startup, right? Like literally connecting celebrities to your best friend for their birthday. Wow. That's amazing. But it's like that same kind. I mean, frankly, it, it is exciting and compelling, right? but there is no authenticity to that, right? It is a transactional, like I'm going to pay a B or C list celebrity to message right. my friend. Right. And it feels, you know, fun and authentic and, and right. but, but it's, but it's not. Whereas like right. being able to bring the actual right. authentic, like connection of your right. students, your community together, leveraging right. in some ways, similar technology to me is, is, is a lot more exciting than something that is, is truly transactional. Yeah. So true. Although I have two teenage daughters and we got really into Survivor during the pandemic. All right. Tell me. So about I, it. My first cameo for my daughter was Sandra, who's one. If you're a fan of Survivor, she's one. She's the only, I think, two or three time winner. But anyway, she sent an amazing video to my daughter that, you know, she loved. So I do well, love. And I will also fess up with my cam. Everybody, you should share your cameo experiences in the yeah. comments below. Yeah. But um, we, uh, right when the pandemic hit, I uh, decided to write a little song, had a little time on my hands. And so I wrote okay. a song called I'm Working From Home Now to the tune of I Think We're Alone Now by Tiffany. And <laughs> it actually got like 100,000 views on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, and then my team got me a cameo from Tiffany and they had shared like my song with her. So, you know, I'm smiling, you're smiling, but it's, it's that kind of, (laughs) you know, connection that is now possible that in the past just never was. And it's, and it's super exciting. And and a lot of this was sort of forced on us by the pandemic. And I think now we've got an opportunity um, on this, this side of it to, to really start thinking about how do we apply that not out of uh, kind of desperation or right. you know reaction, but but more proactively and more more consistently. And even you know, look, I just saw um, on, on your Twitter, and I saw that Stormy had shared this super cool you know 360 video experience right. at the I think Indiana State Fair or something yeah. like that. And so maybe tell me a little bit about you know as a leader, you know stuff yeah. like that is not free, right? I mean, investing right. in video, investing in content, right? right. It it is a choice. Um, and there isn't always like a crystal clear return on investment, but there is the kind of visceral, you know, you're reaching more people. Um, how do you think about it? And then, you know, how do you decide to have representation at the state fair, for example? Right. 
Yeah, State Fair was was a good time. So um, yeah, the university, I think, uh, wanted to have a presence at the State Fair this year and made an investment. And so uh, Stormy and Lola and I went down there and worked on a Friday night, um, just, you know, passing out Ball State, you know, swag and giving football schedules and inviting people back to our campus. Probably 70% of our alumni live in the state of Indiana. So a lot of people pretty close to home. And um, the 360 was a fun investment uh, that the university made and a way for people to really participate um, in that day. But I think to your larger point, thank you for us has been a game changer. We have more donors and alumni talking to us about the videos that they've received um, that they got a year ago. So, you know, we have a, a board member, Randy Pond, who lives in California. And almost every time I talk to Randy, he brings up this video that he got from a student and how much he enjoyed it. And he showed it to his wife and he showed it to his daughters. And it just spoke to him in a way that I can't imagine a, you know, a letter, no matter how good the letter was, would have um, uh, communicated our story. So I just think those things have had a really lasting, uh, a lasting impact on um, on our alumni. And so we're we're excited to continue that partnership um, and really see the value that video tells the story differently. And I think yeah. not scripting our students and allowing them to be who they are, putting them on campus, um, being able to show a donor. So we sent a video, Patrick Alderdice is one of our donors and gave to a gateway and being able to go in front of that gateway and film myself and say, Patrick, thank you. Look at what you made possible and show him the students so good. taking selfies, right? Like amazing, as opposed to so just- good. Here's a photo of what you did. So, yeah. So just good. No. And and I think that actually, like, I'd love to get your perspective on this. But one of the areas that we are really excited about in the coming months and years is thinking about the traditional approach to stewardship and donor relations. And, you know, almost everybody who works in that field can visualize right now what the stewardship matrix looks like. Right. right? At this gift band. Right. then this thing happens and yeah. what those things are, are different right. at Ball State versus right. any other institution. Right. Um, but there is a common set of rules, usually in a spreadsheet, usually run by somebody, uh, you know, in the stewardship group. And, right. and we look at those spreadsheets today and for the most part, I mean, there is definitely evolution where now it might say, hey, at this level, you get a personalized thank you from a student, right? Whereas at this level, maybe it's a more generic thank you because we, we right. don't feel like we can truly do one-to-one -to, -one to everyone. Right. Um, and then, you know, at this level, the president of the university is going to call you, right? I mean, there's, there's right. a whole bunch of rules, but it feels like um, there is an opportunity to, uh, to automate and continue to evolve some of those rules so that one, we're, we're, we're leaning more on um, digital, right? Maybe there's a, a, a future point where uh, we've got a, a team of student ambassadors that, you know, if you get to X level, we're actually going to invite you to do a 15 minute conversation with a student beneficiary, 
Um, and that's going to happen via, via zoom or via FaceTime, or, or, right. you know, maybe it's just a, a phone call. Right. Um, you know, at this level, it's the president at this level, it's a thank you. Uh, but then I also think that there's a, a huge opportunity going forward to not just root the stewardship experience in, in what was just given, mm-hmm. but rather what's possible. Right. Um, and historically, I, I think that if somebody, you know, gave a $200 gift and they had $20 million, or $200,000 of student loans, for a lot of universities, the stewardship experience is going to be go down the matrix, $200, and this is what they get versus, wait a second, we need to be much more strategic when small gifts from big potential prospects come in to elevate the experience immediately. And we're starting to see some of that happen. I don't know if you've given that thought, but that's probably one of the areas like the intersection of stewardship and discovery that we see there being tremendous potential. Right. Yeah, I think a good example of that for us is what we've done with One Ball State Day, right? So our day of giving and everyone who gives on that day gets a thank you video, right? So we have students in real time throughout that day, or I I think I said everyone, I think it's maybe at $100 or more, but still a significant number are getting those videos. And we're not measuring them based off of, do they have the capability of giving $2 billion? It's they gave on this day. We want them to feel the energy of our campus. They're going to get a video in real time from a student. And we're seeing that that then they reference that when they make another gift that day, they reference it two weeks later when they post something on social media that says, I'm so proud of my alma mater and I love the video I got because it I felt the energy of campus that day. Um, I mean, we, we hear that. It's things that they continue to reference throughout the year. So um, it's been a really important tool for us on our day of giving um, to, to bring the energy to yeah. across the country. No, and I, and I think, you know, our hope is that right today, for most institutions, days of giving are generally going to be um, evaluated on donors and dollars on that day. And our hope is that in the not too distant future, it can really become donors, dollars and pipeline. Yeah. Donors, dollars, pipeline, a little bit more kind of, of that immediate post donation qualification. And then we can bring that same type of experience over the course of the calendar year. Um, I did ask you a question in advance around, um, where, where you might think the industry is over-investing. And I'm just going to tread lightly and walk on eggshells as I share the snippet of your response. Um, but, uh, but you said maybe we're over-investing in alumni relations if your alumni relations shop looks the same as it did 10 years ago. What does that mean? Right. I think if alumni relations is still event-based and you're just having what you've always had, it's the golf outing to have a golf outing. I think if that's still where you are, that is no longer where I think our alumni are. I think our alumni want a meaningful experience um, that connects them to their alma mater. And, and maybe that looks like a golf outing, but maybe part of that golf outing should have students there, right? So if one of our goals is, is mentoring, then maybe students who have newly moved to that you know, area of Indiana are invited to be part of the foursome. 
um, golfing with alumni in that community. If you're just there golfing with the same people you could have golfed with last Saturday, I'm not sure that's moving the needle um, in engagement back to Ball State. So I think um, that is an industry that's gone through a lot of changes over the past decades, certainly during the pandemic. I think there were a lot of uh, lessons learned, um, but I think um, that's one where we better need to connect that work to everything that we're focused on in uh, the life cycle of, of an alum and a benefactor of the university. I love it. And, you know, I think that there are competing views on this, but we believe strongly, right? What, what, why, why do we invest in alumni relations? Mm -hmm. We invest in alumni relations to elevate affinity, drive connection and generate pipeline for right. philanthropy. It's right. literally why we do it. There right. are people who would hear that and react in a very negative way, uh, friend raising versus fundraising. But, but I think the intersection of alumni and development is, is growing. It's mm -hmm. accelerating. And, you know, one of, one of my favorite examples right now, I got to give a shout out to Jack Tennant at the University of Wyoming, who is their uh, executive director of the Alumni Association. He worked in the foundation previously, worked in development previously, so has great empathy yeah, for right. the opportunity for mm -hmm. the alumni relations investment to build community and drive pipeline. And so now every month he is creating a thank you video that is now their alumni newsletter, except it's yeah. him out and about the same way uh -huh. you're describing. It's right. you know, 60 seconds, 90 yeah. seconds. This is the, the monthly digest of, and it gives people a window into his world as the alumni leader. Right. Uh, he's down at the local Laramie Farmers Market, similar to Muncie, right? right? They're totally yep. interconnected. Right. Um, and we are sharing that video. He shares that video to the whole community on a monthly basis, yeah, I love but that. it doesn't stop there. We right. then are looking at people who watch multiple videos who have a certain capacity right. and then they get assigned to development officers for follow-up. Right. So it's lead generation, right. even though he's not yeah. necessarily talking about how you might give to the university of Wyoming. And right. some people hear that and they, they get uncomfortable. They're like, wait right. a second, you're, you're right. kind of watching who watches it and then making right. assignments. Yeah. The same way right. that we for decades have seen right. who comes to the event. And then we do a follow-up. Follow it's just the digital right. version of that. And yeah. so curious to get your reactions on yeah. that kind of strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I think connecting the dots. I don't know that we've always done that well. Um, and I think, um, you know, we're very fortunate here at Ball State that I think many of our alumni leaders have really over the past couple of years said, we need to evolve. We learned some things. Let's not forget what we learned during the pandemic. And let's make sure that we're aligned with the university's priorities and that we are helping them reach our goal. That's ultimately why we're here as an association is to support the goals of the university. Um, and so it's been uh, really enjoyable to work with that leadership group as they have evolved, I would say, over the past several years. But but yeah, from the time I first started at Ball State, um, there was definitely, I think, that push-pull. I mean, we worked all in the same building. And 
as someone who was on the university advancement team, we didn't have great connections to our colleagues um, who worked in alumni engagement. So I think that's been years in the making. We've made significant progress. We went through a unification to really bring that structure. So I applaud Ball State's efforts to say we all need to be better working together. So that's been a long time coming. Um, but I think, yeah, connecting the dots is huge. And I think sometimes in university advancement worlds, we've been a little slow on the uptick there. All right, we're wrapping uh, shortly here, but I'm going to ask yeah. you one last question and then give yeah. you a chance to plug Ball State. Um, do less and obsess about doing it well. Move yeah. deliberately and quickly in all things. <laughs> Why do those quotes stand out to you? Yeah. I think um, kind of to what we were just talking about, I think for a long time we tried to be all things to all people. And I think we have to focus on what it is that that we can do well and, and then do it. And I think we have to move quickly. I think there has long been sort of this, you know, uh, notion around higher ed that we were slow um, to either respond or slow to, to change. Um, and I think we've got to move at the pace in which the real world moves. Uh, we've got to keep up with that. I think that's the expectation of um, the people we're engaging. Uh, you know, we talk in higher ed about, you know, well, this is normal for higher ed. Well, the reality is it's probably not normal for the rest of the world. So we have to, uh, I think, do a better job of conforming to, I think, the expectations that others have of us, which is responding to their needs, um, responding and changing appropriately. Um, and um, yeah, so that's something we talk about, I think, as a, as a team. And I see my job as, as removing barriers that sometimes slow that change down. Um, so I, you know, tell me what the problem is, and then I got to get in front of it so I can get out of, get it, whatever it is out of <laughs> my team's way so that they can do their jobs and do them well. Gene, there are directors of donor relations listening to this episode right now, thinking to myself, I thinking to themselves, I could never be a foundation president, or how did she go from donor relations to leading the foundation? What advice do you have to those people or other people that are maybe early in their careers, but get, you know, excited or aspirational about wanting to, um, to lead in the way that you are today? Yeah. So. I think, um, you know, the technical aspect of being any leader, right? You can learn those things, but 80% of my week is on the, the soft skills, right? And it's, it is that human to human relationship, whether it's with a board member, a campus partner, president of the university. So it's your ability to connect with people. People do things for people they like, <laughs> right? That's who they want to work with. And I think what you learn in donor relations or your ability to, to tell stories, show impact are the same things that will lead you to, to opportunities in various leadership roles. And they are the same things that I count on to be able to do um, as I work with our team here at the foundation, the board, 
and as I said, campus partners and, and the president of the university. It's, it's all the same stuff. It's about doing what you say you're going to do, being a good person, being authentic, real, um, and, and focusing on that relationship and human-human connection. So all the I same. love that. Beautiful concluding thoughts. Although when you said people do things for people they like, I'm now <laughs> thinking of things that I want done and I'm wondering... <laughs> Wait a second. Maybe they just don't like me. So I'm going to go work on that. Uh, at least be a little introspective on it. Uh, tell me about Ball State uh, Foundation. Are you hiring? Why should people be excited and, and check out the careers page? Yeah, um, I we are hiring. Uh, it's a great organization. I, what I think we do really well is invest in the person. So we're invested in your success, obviously, here at Ball State, but more importantly, and I always say this to the team, we're invested in you as a human being and want you to be successful, whether it's here or someplace else. And so I take it seriously that it's my job to make sure you have opportunities um, to, to grow. And so we do, we've got a lot of positions posted. We're a growing organization, but I think at the end of the day, Coming to work has got to be a place where you know people care about you um, and what matters to you beyond work. And you would find that here uh, at the foundation. And that really is the character of who Ball State is. Um, so I love it. Thank you for sharing your story with yeah. us, Gene. And I would say to everybody um, uh, listening, it's at Gene Crosby BSUF on Twitter. Uh, I love it when we've got. Uh, foundation and advancement leaders that are playing an active role. And it's really fun to have a window into your world and, and, yeah. and see what's going on at Ball State, what you're up Thank to. You um, and then I imagine if folks want to connect on LinkedIn, is that a good way to, to follow Absolutely. up? Cool. Yeah, we'd love that. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, thank you for, for sharing the story again, Jean. I look forward to continuing to get to know you. Yeah, uh, and, uh, and yeah, to the whole ball state team, keep it up. You're, you're setting a great example for the rest of the sector. Uh, and so with that, uh, rent signing off from Boulder, Colorado, my heart rate's a little bit elevated, but got through it with Gene Kramer Crosby, president of the ball state university foundation and vice president for university advancement at ball state university. Thank you, Gene. Take care everybody. Thanks so much, Brett.